You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You're listening to the CRX Podcast. The CRX Podcast provides an added benefit for healthcare professionals and readers of the CRX Magazine, a leader in reliable information and news about medical cannabis. The CRX Podcast will provide the latest discussions about cannabinoid products as part of a patient's treatment plans and deliver the latest education about medical cannabis for pharmacists, physicians, and innovative healthcare providers. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Joseph Friedman, pharmacist with the CRX podcast, and I'm thrilled to have a couple of very special guests today. Uh, and I'm going to um, you know, ask our guests to take about a minute or so and introduce themselves, Dr. David Nathan and Dr. Abby Stoddard. So, Dr. Nathan, um, go ahead. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. My name is David Nathan. I am a writer, educator, psychiatrist, uh, speaker, and for the purposes of today's conversation, I am the founder and board president of Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which is the uh, first and premier organization of physicians specifically dedicated to the legalization, taxation, and above all, the, uh, the effective regulation of cannabis in the United States. And we have uh, physicians on our board and our honorary board and our speakers list that represent the best and brightest of American medicine. We have a former Surgeon General, Joycelyn Elders, integrative medicine pioneer, Andrew Weil, uh, public health guru uh, and uh, president of the World's AIDS Foundation, um, uh, Chris Byer. All of these physicians signed on to a declaration of principles in 2015 that launched our organization explaining why it is that physicians like us believe that cannabis prohibition has been harmful, it's been ineffective and also unnecessary. So I'm delighted to be here today to talk about uh, some of the recent updates in cannabis policy around the country and talk about where we're headed. Great, and, and, and this topic is taken right from the winter 2021 edition of Cannabis Rx or CRX Magazine, and it's an editorial um, article about election victories and advocacy. So with that said, uh, Abby, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, thanks Joseph, and thank you so much for having me today. Uh, so my name is Abby Stoddard. I'm a pharmacist, and I think a little bit like you, Joseph, I'm a jack-of-all-trades pharmacist uh, in my career in the last uh, decade or so here. So uh, my background is in managed care pharmacy, so I come from the pharmacy benefits and insurance world. Uh, but from there, I spent a lot of time in state-based health policy. So I was a state lobbyist. Uh, covering 18 different states for health policy for a pharmacy benefit manager for several years. Uh, currently, my largest area of interest and largest area of focus is uh, cannabis and cannabis health policy. So I'm the founder of the Client Centered Network, which is a cannabis resource site in the state of Oregon. Uh, but I also stay very active in my home state here of Minnesota. So I'm on Minnesota's Medical Cannabis Review Panel, which is a panel that is 
uh, run by the Minnesota Department of Health, and they're the group that reviews new qualifying conditions for the state medical cannabis program. Uh, so my main area of interest, main area of work is uh, just watching with bated breath about where cannabis health policy is going to land. And of course, as a pharmacist, I am most interested in where pharmacists are going to fit in that landscape. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. That's that's great, Abby. And you know, as a fellow pharmacist, I'm 100% behind the idea of pharmacists in medical dispensaries where a healthcare professional can really assist with patient care and quality of life and make the right suggestions. So getting right into the, the meat of this um, podcast is, you know, on, on November 30th, voters in several states made definitive statements about cannabis use. So Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota approved adult use, um, while South Dakota also approved medical initiative along with uh, the state of Mississippi. So our, our first question, and, 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 and Dr. Uh, Nathan, you know, what are the ramifications of this recent expansion of states in which cannabis is legal? Oh, there are so many ramifications, but probably the most important thing to come out of November's election is to really, in, in concrete numbers, show the degree to which the nation uh, and multiple regions around the nation are now fully prepared and very enthusiastic about ending uh, the war on cannabis. I think that the margins by which you saw voters approve the ballot initiatives in Mississippi and New Jersey and South Dakota, three very different states, shows that there is really no more appetite for the criminalization of this plant that, as we all know, uh, for occasional adult use uh, in healthy adults is not harmful and certainly far less harmful uh, for adults than alcohol and tobacco. And so we're finally closing the uh, logical uh, and uh, ethical gap uh, in our policies to stop criminalizing behavior, especially when that criminalization falls disproportionately upon communities of color. Great. Well, you know, you know, from that standpoint, you know, and I'm I'm thinking about Nebraska, and just this past weekend, um, Nebraska Governor Pete Rickards, Ricketts publicly claimed that the push for marijuana legalization, uh, and I'm going to quote from what Ricketts said on his podium, will kill your kids, and you know, and then I also noticed there was a prominent Smart Approaches to Marijuana, or SAM banner, on the podium Ricketts was presenting from. So I'm not surprised, you know, that Ricketts is behind this, this, this incredible lie that Kevin Sabat and SAM is behind. But what do you think about that? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. You know, this is the same rhetoric that we heard in the early 1930s, which is really the first time that uh, cannabis got a lot of attention uh, in United States uh, media. And that was because, you know, with the end of alcohol prohibition and uh, the presence of racism against both black people and Latino people, they saw that there's really a uh, gap uh, in the way uh, we're approaching uh, alcohol and uh, all other drugs. Um, really because there were already laws that restricted the use of uh, 
opioids and cocaine and other uh, so-called uh, dangerous drugs. There was nothing like that for cannabis. And so they knew that cannabis wasn't so harmful by itself. Uh, there was some understanding of that back then, especially among physicians who knew cannabis as a medicine, uh, that it wasn't lethal in overdose. That was known in the 19th century. And so what could individuals, politicians uh, do to vilify this drug? Well, the answer was to find a way to frame it in terms of how it would be harmful to our children. And in fact, one of the earliest uh, films that we know so well, Reefer Madness, the original title of that was Tell Your Children. The idea was that, okay, maybe cannabis isn't so har harmful in its own, but uh, it is, and I paraphrase, but a stepping stone to the use of heroin. Uh, we have been hearing about this gateway uh, myth for 80, 90 years since then. It was not true then, and science shows us now that there is not a, not a causal link between the use of cannabis and the later use of other drugs uh, anything beyond the fact that, not surprisingly, people will tend to use the so-called soft drugs before the so-called hard drugs. And that's hardly surprising that somebody would try alcohol before cocaine, or they would try cannabis before um, methamphetamine. It's, it's hardly surprising that the more available and the less harmful drug tends to be uh, the one that's tried earlier. So when you hear people saying that it's going to kill our children. Well, they can't speak literally because even the opposition admits that it's not fatal in overdose. Uh, and so they try to find other things. And it's not to say that cannabis is harmless in children. The non-medical use of cannabis can indeed, uh, in my reading of the literature, affect brain development adversely. Uh, but that's hardly the same as saying it kills our children because there are many factors in life that affect our children adversely, not the least of which is how the drug war has led to broken families and it's exacerbated the poverty of the impoverished in our inner cities. And those issues are killing our children. And the violence of the illegal drug trade, uh, which is a purely a factor of its illegality, that it makes it competitive, it's cash-based, it's untaxed and it's very lucrative. When you hear about our children dying from cannabis, what they're actually dying from is the consequences of cannabis prohibition. So the governor has it upside down. Right, and then, you know, Dr. Stoddard, you know, how, if at all, has the recent election and the earlier increase in uh, legalization in several states changed the focus of advocacy needs? Um, you know, you've been involved a lot in advocacy in several states. So what do you think about that? Uh, well, I think it is, you know, part of the uh, snapshot that we have now that I think is so fascinating is we have states that are starting from zero. Uh, we have states that are starting somewhere in the middle and have had a program for the last few years. And then we have states with very mature markets. Uh, so I think with everything happening concurrently, the push for legalization, what 
what I see and what I think is really positive is I do see states learning from states who are looking to expand their program or start new programs, learning from and looking to states with more mature marketplaces of how to roll it out uh, in a in a better way. Uh, so you talked a lot about South Dakota. Uh, I'm not really sure what's going to happen there. Uh, and Joseph, I don't know if you have an update for us, but that ballot initiative was very interesting. Uh, I think it is potentially tied up in the courts at the moment because it had too many subjects within it. But I know South Dakota was that the fact that they did it on a ballot ballot initiative and that it was successful, um, even though it may be challenged, really pushed forward the conversation in Minnesota. So if you look at where Minnesota is, you know, we've got Illinois with full adult use. We have Michigan with adult use. And now we have our neighbors in South Dakota also looking at similar things. Uh, it really pushes forward debate in all of the adjacent states to kind of, you know, give up the ghost a little bit about that we can prevent this completely from happening. And, and you um, know what, I think mm -hmm. politicians have a tendency to, like for example, and, and jumping back to Nebraska, you know, last September, um, Nebraska Supreme Court blocked uh, November, the November medical cannabis vote. And there mm -hmm. was one county sheriff in Lancaster County, um, Terry Wagner, who spearheaded this opposition. And, and he just said that, you know, the cannabis proposal lacked natural and necessary connection to each other. You know, and he said subsections of the proposal would have allowed patients the constitutional property right to sell and grow cannabis and give the criminal immunity and give the criminal immunity from current state law. Um, and then other parts of the act would have barred smoking cannabis in public or operating a motor, motor vehicle while under the influence. So he, he just said these are naturally these are not naturally connected to the general subject. And I think it's a lot of right. BS. Um, right. <laughs> yes, it's a stall tactic, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, now, now Dr. Dr. Nathan, um, you know, one of the things that I think has really happened, you know, from your standpoint is this social equity thing. So how significant an effect is all this legalization likely to have on minority populations? Well, I think that remains to be seen. It depends how the law is translated into actual regulation. So, for example, in my home state of New Jersey, there have actually been uh, many surprising uh, aspects of the law that actually support uh, social justice issues. We weren't necessarily expecting that the legislature uh, would be quite as woke as it is on some of these issues. Uh, I'll note that that is, of course, with the exception of home uh, cultivation, which we could discuss separately. But as far as what is in the law, it allows for micro licensing. Uh, it, it focuses and targets uh, social impact zones that have been disproportionately uh, harmed by the war on drugs generally and and policing even more generally, uh, and, and tries to not simply stop the arrests and hopefully uh, reverse the convictions uh, you know, with expungement and resentencing, um, but goes beyond the non-negative and actually strays into positive territory. 
of actively trying to engage with minority communities around uh, their participation in the cannabis industry. I think it's going to be slow going uh, in seeing a lot of this realized, uh, partly because this, this is just how states have uh, um, historically been rolling out their cannabis programs. So, so Abby, you did touch on, you know, mm -hmm. when a state starts, you know, with, with legalization on the medical side, they go to adult use. Well, you know, that's sort of a stepping stone. But what's, what, what has been the effect on patients where this has happened? You know, where it's been medical, then it's gone adult use. And, you know, are, are the patients left out? Sure. And uh, Joseph, if I actually could, and you feel free to cut, but um, Dr. Nathan, I really liked your approach on that last question and just wanted to add one piece um, in, in case it, it helps. Because I think the social equity aspect of it is really one of the areas where I am hoping that states look to each other, especially the more mature markets, and learn uh, what works and i really liked your framing of we need to be both you know positive and non-negative in terms of what we're looking at and what our goals are for inclusion um so the state of oregon has uh currently filed the cannabis equity act it's house bill 3112 in oregon and i would encourage everybody to take a look at that for what are the big pieces of equity that have so far been left behind? Um, so Oregon, even though they've had an adult use market for the last five years, this bill kind of puts together all of the pieces that were missing at the outset um, or were false starts. And so um, that piece to me is something that all states can, can look to and learn from, especially the expungement pieces, what's working, what's not, um, and how we increase the ownership of uh, minority groups in the cannabis industry. So I just had to uh, call that out, Joseph, as, as part of your last question for your uh, readers to look at. Right, right. Well, well, you just mentioned, you know, like the you know stepping stone going from medical to adult use. But what happens to the patients? Are they left out when adult mm. use occurs? And mm -hmm. you know, what, is, what has been the, the effect that you've seen in these states that have done this? For sure. Uh, and this is, again, um, I got to bring us back to the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, because I think their data over the last five years has really bore out what happens. And I think we'll see repeated in a lot of different iterations. Um, so, you know, and we can look objectively at the data as what's happened, where do patients fall in the adult use market is still kind of a gray area. Uh, but if you look at the Oregon market before uh, adult use legalization, you know, at its peak, they had 427 medically licensed dispensaries uh, at its peak. Fast forward to the present day, uh, they have less than three medically licensed dispensaries, and they have over 660 adult use dispensaries. So just a, a complete flip overnight. Um, and that's not to say that the dispensaries that are licensed as adult use dispensaries don't serve patients. They certainly do. Uh, but you can see where the market forces um, 
push those in the industry and, you know, where the opportunities are. Um, the medical patient program, the Oregon Medical Marijuana Program, as it's called, uh, for medical card holders, that is uh, been cut almost about in half. Um, and there's currently 22,000 enrollees in that program because uh, there are still some benefits to being in the program in terms of how much they can buy, uh, in terms of not being subject to the state sale tax, which uh, currently is 20%. And of course, there's legislation this year to bump that to 50%, which would make it uh, really more worthwhile even to have a card. Um, but a lot of what we've seen in Oregon is there has been a huge turn turnover in the industry. And, you know, unfortunately, what they say, you know, colloquially in Oregon is this is a market now for high utilizers by high utilizers. So pushing up the THC levels higher and higher and higher, more concentrated products, um, not necessarily an industry that is focused around um, personalized medicine, unique patient needs, um, and the making of unique products that um, are in demand for patients. You know, I understand what you're saying, Abby. And, and you know what, as uh, you know, I sold my dispensary in 2019 and uh, six months later, uh, you know, it was, it was bought by one of the big, you know, MSOs out there, um, multi-state operators, and they converted into what they wanted for their dispensary. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to one of my former employees and uh, she said that 95% of the patients have switched away to other dispensaries. They really weren't getting the kind of care um, from the new dispensary based on what we were doing in the past. So Dr. Dr. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. Dr. And, I'll, and I'll just, sorry, Joseph, just to add one more point to that. I think if, if you were a, if you were one of your patients per se, looking for another dispensary, I don't even know where they would, where they would start. Uh, Cause all of the, directory sites and you know you either know your dispensary by word of mouth or personal experience um, but all of the information the directory sites out there it's very pay to play in terms of your ranking and where you fall uh, so honestly if a, if a patient was switching from your dispensary to a next the journey of how they find their next fit um, I think can be very very frustrating and time consuming for a lot of patients right and, and I would consider that sort of a you know they all got lost and yes. uh, they're, they're wherever they're at, and they're probably doing a lot of more, a lot more switching around. So, Dr. Nathan, um, you know, what problems, if any, are inadequately addressed by the current advocates? Um, you know, what else? Uh, what else most needs to be addressed to create an equitable industry? Well, first of all, I, I have a couple of thoughts on the last question. Um, if if you want to use them, sure. Uh, just about um, medical versus rec or medical versus, okay. Uh, so I, I agree with everything that both uh, you and Abby said on, on this topic. Uh, I'll note that here in New Jersey, the Coalition for Medical Marijuana of New Jersey was very much supportive of adult legalization. And I think that there's a lot of sense in that for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, uh, having greater access overall, even if not through the gatekeeper of the 
uh, physician or clinician and uh, the medical dispensary. It allows patients to get what they want, where they want. Uh, and so I think that adult legalization is overall a positive uh, for medical legalization because it normalizes uh, and, and normalizes use and makes the availability of, uh, uh, of cannabis much broader. And in fact, one of the uh, spokespeople for DFCR, uh, Dr. Julia Arnston, uh, who herself started the first indigent uh, cannabis medical clinic in America uh, in the Bronx, she did a study of talking to patients leaving adult dispensaries in legalized states and asking them why they were buying. And what she found is that a majority of people going to the adult dispensaries were purchasing it for specific medical reasons. And so while we may want to ensure the integrity of medical cannabis by uh, having medical dispensaries that you're not paying tax for. I, I think that a well-stocked dispensary could be either for medical or adult use. Um, okay, so enough of that. Uh, your next question is, um, what should advocates be looking at? Well, how, how can they, you know, how can advocates, you know, uh, you know change or, or what has been in, inadequately addressed by advocates, you know, uh, based on, you know, the needs to be addressed to create an equitable industry? Sure. Uh, well, I think that the most glaring uh, omission, and it's certainly not through lack of effort from the advocates, but rather our pleas falling upon deaf ears in uh, among state lawmakers, and that is home cultivation. Now, most of the states that legalized cannabis for adult use also allowed limited home cultivation. My home state of New Jersey, unfortunately, has not. Uh, and I think that if there was one aspect of legalization that bears upon social justice uh, that did not come through for us, this is it. Uh, and it's important to have home cultivation for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, the social justice argument that if there are people who uh, because of their economic situation have the greater abundance of time than finances, then sh they should be allowed to grow their own. Uh, as long as it's a limited number of plants and they're clearly not using it, uh, you know, they're not using the system uh, to grow and sell. Uh, but, you know, police have the ability to count to three or six or five or whatever the legal number of plants is. Um, and so I, I do think that it's it's something that doesn't really cut into the industry's profits, uh, but has the potential to help people in, in uh, lower socioeconomic situations. So there is a social justice argument, but there's actually a, a very important medical argument to be made in allowing home cultivation. And that is that dispensaries, whether they're medical or adult, may or may not carry the strain that a patient finds most helpful. Uh, and this actually came up in my own personal situation where my father, who uh, has graciously allowed me to 
talk about the fact that he's a medical marijuana patient for uh, for his Parkinson's and neck and back pain. Um, he needs a strain that is balanced between THC and CBD. And that's not always so popular uh, in the dispensaries. We could talk about the reasons why that would be, but it had been it has been difficult for me to find those strains. Ultimately, I've been able to do it for him, uh, but not all patients have the kind of resources that I do to find exactly what we're looking for. And for those individuals, they should be allowed to get the seeds from the strain that works best for them and grow their own. Uh, I, you know, I think that the biggest pressure against home cultivation is a perception on the part of lawmakers or industry or not sure who that somehow it's going to be a problem for the industry and it's really not the case people are allowed to brew their own beer uh, or make their own wine uh, and that's actually a much more dangerous process uh, it, because you can produce a toxic byproduct that could kill you uh, in in brewing alcohol but when it comes to cannabis you're growing a plant. And while it's not a trivial thing to grow a cannabis plant uh, that will flower since only the females flower and it takes a long time and you need certain lighting conditions, it can be done. And for that reason, we should allow it to be done. Great. Um, Abby, you know, what kind of changes uh, might we be expected to see, you know, with the new Biden administration? Oh, uh, that's a good question, Joseph. And before we go to Dr. Nathan, I just had to say your last comment made me smile about brewing beer. Um, my father used to brew his own beer many, many years ago. And I'm just remembering when you said that, I just remembered the smell of the hops is <laughs> so strong. It's like, yeah, if you, and I think you're totally right. If we can brew our own beer, a homegrown should be allowed because I think actually brewing beer smells 10 times as strong, you know, if neighbors are concerned. And uh, I don't think your father put any of the major breweries out of business with I him. don't, I can tell you he didn't, yeah. <laughs> We're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Miller is still going strong, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, with the, uh, Joseph, uh, to your question, what can we expect to see with the Biden uh, administration um, you know, this is totally my crystal ball on it, uh, but I would, let me, let me phrase it this way. At a minimum, uh, I am hopeful that we can get something around banking uh, and something around expungements and uh, criminal justice reform from the equity lens for cannabis. Uh, I think full federal legalization, I mean, maybe my work as a state lobbyist has just made me pessimistic, uh, but I don't know that we can expect that, but I think we can hopefully expect some banking reform. That would, I think, be the first thing I would expect. And then after that, more um, detailed work around what full federal legalization may look like, but with a huge emphasis 
on the social equity aspect. Um, Because if you look at, you know, even Dr. Nays, then your neighbors in New York, this has been the issue that has been driving adult use and has been, you know, shoulder to shoulder with um, in all of the debates and the advocates in New York have been very clear that if it is not something that is equitable, uh, you know, it's not something that they want to move forward with. And so I, I expect that sort of um, bent on it from the Biden administration as well. And, and I think, you know, bringing it back to, you know, what's left behind in equity, I think it's it's very much the devil in, in the details type of conversation. Because, you know, you look at mature markets, again, Oregon, they've had the ability to expunge cannabis convictions, cannabis records um, for the last um, several years. And they have 28,000 people who are eligible for expungement, but they have but only 200 people have successfully gone through that process. Uh, so right there, it is a huge um, devil in the detail issue. And I think we see the advocates pushing the Biden administration on things like that, which is good. Um, you know, it needs to be, expungements need to be automatic. It needs to address the full picture of, do folks have to um, adjudicate all of their fines associated with their convictions? You know, things like that. It's Definitely something where I don't think the Biden administration is just gonna let it go at a high level. I think they're really gonna dig in and get to the details of what works um, because they have so much state experience to look at now. And you know, another point, and then you know, this goes back to what Dr. Nathan was was uh, referencing about you know adult use and medical use. When uh, Illinois was going through the process of legalizing for adult use. You know, one senator and one representative, Kelly Cassidy and Heather Steens, you know, they were behind the legislation. And I remember going to a town hall meeting where they mentioned there was somewhere around 700,000 people in Illinois that never wanted to be above the radar. They never wanted to mm-hmm. get fingerprinted or see a doctor or, you know, pay the costs to get a medical cannabis card. And so they were going to the black market and many of them for medical reasons. And so with recreational or adult use dispensaries open up, opening up, now they can get you know, quality products from adult use dis- dispensaries. And, and that was a big win, even though it's more expensive. So we're, we're closing in on um, this, um, this podcast. And I just wanted to you know, ask both of you, Dr. Nathan and you, Abby Stoddard, you know, what do you see on the horizon and any kind of other parting words that you have? Dr. Nathan? Uh, sure. I, I first... Um answer your question about the Biden administration, you know, President Biden has said that he wants to decriminalize but not legalize cannabis. Uh, Vice President Harris has for a while was in favor of decriminalization, eventually was won over to the legalization side, hasn't commented on the subject since she's taken office, though she has said that she is now fully in step uh, with President Biden's policies. I think that both for President Biden and for some of the old medical associations, uh, they are certainly well-intentioned in their desire to reduce uh, the harms being done to communities of color. 
And uh, the AMA, for one, has come out strongly against systemic racism. But And both President Biden and uh, what I would say is some of our old-timey doctors uh, have said that they do think that we should decriminalize cannabis, but they don't think we should legalize it, which puts them in the very curious position of saying that they want to remove penalties for the adult use of a drug and, and essentially allow adults to use the drug, but they oppose regulation. And I think that that's a morally and uh, logically indefensible point of view. If you are going to allow adults to use it, then you darn well better regulate the stuff. And so Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, it's right in their name, that that's a major focus for us. And right now, a major focus for me um, and something that I'll be working on uh, as soon as we get off this podcast is the subject of standardized labeling for cannabis products, because that represents the final common pathway of a number of processes uh, that have to take place and be done properly before a product gets to uh, individuals, whether they are medical patients or adult consumers. And that labeling should, of course, include basic information like THC and CBD. It should also have uh, appropriate warnings that are not hyperbolic, that people will know they can safely ignore, nor should it be um, uh, so sparse as to suggest that nobody can be hurt by cannabis because the truth is in the middle somewhere. And so we need appropriate warnings on the label. Uh, we need a universal symbol uh, that designates what a cannabis product looks like. And right now there's a hodgepodge of both cannabis symbols and cannabis labeling from state to state. Um, and I have to say much of it is, is grossly inadequate for the needs of consumers and patients. And so Doctors for Cannabis Regulation has come up with a universal cannabis product symbol and a universal uh, cannabis information label that provides all the basic information about the strain and its content and even takes a first foray into the question of what is a serving size. It's a very controversial issue and it'll remain so but to do, the, to do right by the American people, we need to give some guidance on this question. And I think that labels should include guidance on what a serving of the product looks like. So that's something that we, that's new to the universal cannabis information label. Uh, and if you pull all this information together and what essentially looks a bit like our nutrition facts label, uh, that everyone recognizes so readily. It's a format that consumers and patients will appreciate, will be able to understand, and will use to their benefit. Uh, and so if we can institute something like this, I think we go a long way to ensuring that we've documented testing properly and that we've documented everything that a consumer or patient needs to know about the product that they're buying. So, uh, so any, any parting comments, uh, Dr. Nathan, or was that your parting comment? Yeah, I think, uh, well, there's so much work yet to be done. Uh, I, and, you know, I, I, I would encourage the American people uh, to continue their efforts to uh, 
pass cannabis legalization in places where their legislatures simply refuse to do so. You know, it was through popular effort that alcohol prohibition was ended uh, 13 years after it was started. And that's because of all the collateral harm that was done to the communities, to, to American communities by alcohol prohibition. The cure was much worse than the illness. And it's a similar thing here. Where there is misuse of cannabis, there are many things we should do. Uh, and there are things we should do to prevent the non-medical underage use of cannabis. But using the criminal justice system to do so is utilizing the wrong tool. It's essentially using a sledgehammer to kill a weed. And that's something that Doctors for Cannabis Regulation generally and I specifically advocate strongly for. And I appreciate you giving us this forum uh, to talk about these issues and uh, to get the message out. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. Nathan. How about you, Abby? Yeah, and Dr. Nathan, uh, I really liked your uh, comment on what you see going forward. And I think I would definitely agree with you there. Where where I see going forward and what we need, uh, especially from, you know, Joseph, your audience and the provider community is we need a more productive way for providers to have conversations with their patients about cannabis. And we need to figure out what that looks like because uh, we can no longer say no or pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, state like Minnesota or Pennsylvania or Louisiana, right now we have pharmacists um, deeply involved in those medical programs. And so that solves part of the issue temporarily. But as we see things shift to adult use, we don't really know where those pharmacists are going to be. So we need to figure out where if you're not a medical provider that's already involved in the cannabis industry, if you're a pharmacist working at Walgreens, you know, how can we make that conversation more productive and more helpful uh, for patients and their providers. So, you know, if you can imagine all of the discussions that need to happen uh, at the national level with the American Pharmacists Association, the American Medical Association, all the way down to every single state board, um, you know, they're all set up differently in terms of the uh, guidelines that they have for their providers around cannabis. So all of that needs to change and be integrated. And I think, you know, Dr. Nathan, what you said, the details on product consistency and labeling, things like that need to be done and they will be part of what moves that forward. Um, but there is just uh, so much work to be done in that area. And so that's where I really see us as a, um, you know, the healthcare community at large, that's where our work is, and that is going to be a huge area uh, going forward. Thank you, Abby. And you know what, just to your point, you know, where are pharmacists going to wind up when mm -hmm. this industry goes to adult use? You know, I've got a case, you know, in point right here in Illinois, where one of my former pharmacists who actually went on to teach at a local community college, got hired by, you know, one of the big organizations to run a dispensary, you know, close to where he lives. 
and I had a conversation with him uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, what are you doing there? Are you, you know, consulting with patients? Because while well, I'm the general manager and I'm, I'm really overwhelmed with just running the place, but if someone mm-hmm. needs a consult, you know, I, I can do that. So Illinois was never a state that mandated pharmacist involvement. But, you know, here's a pharmacist who worked, you know, uh, on my team who was very involved with, you know, with the patients. And now he's in a rec dispensary. And so I'm going to probably visit him in the next couple of weeks and see exactly what he's doing. But with all that said, um, Dr. Nathan and, and, and Dr. Stoddard, Abby Stoddard, it's been fantastic having you on here. This is Joseph Friedman on behalf of uh, CRX Magazine and the CRX Podcast signing off for today. And we look forward to uh, doing this again very soon. To find all the episodes from the CRX Podcast, go to crxpodcast.com. To learn more about the latest advancements in medical cannabis, visit crxmag.com. That's crxmag.com. Thanks for listening.